Welcome to Academical, the podcast that peeks under the hood to tell you how the machine of public policy works. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Academical. My name is Aidan Dowd. I am a first-year MPP student, and today we have a really great conversation. I'm talking all about the world of political speech writing, something that um, I don't know a lot about that I don't think uh, many people do know the ins and outs of and how that uh, goes into policy work. Um, so today our guest to talk about this is none other than Mary-Kate Carey. Professor Carey is a practitioner senior fellow at UVA's Miller Center and also an adjunct professor in the UVA Department of Politics. She served as a White House speechwriter from 1989 to 1992 for President George H.W. Bush, then as spokeswoman and deputy director of policy and communications for then Attorney General Bill Barr. In 2014, she was the creator and executive producer of 41 on 41, a documentary about President George H.W. Bush, which premiered internationally on CNN and will soon be available on CNN's streaming site in January of 2022. She's also a producer of President in Waiting, a documentary about the modern vice presidency that features interviews with all the living vice presidents, which debuted on CNN in December 2020. And she now chairs the advisory board of the George and Barbara Bush Foundation. She teaches classes on political speech writing at UVA and also provides commentary weekly for Canadian TV and many other news outlets. Welcome, Professor Carey, to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aiden. You obviously have had a very successful career in political communications and speech writing for policymakers. But what some may not know is that you started actually as a UVA student, like many of our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about your time as a student and how you broke into the world of news writing and politics? Sure. I uh, am a member of the mighty class of 1985 here at UVA, <laughs> along with uh, many of my classmates uh, have moved back to Charlottesville. A lot of my friends are doing the same thing, so it's totally awesome. And the way I sort of got into it at UVA, I was a foreign affairs major and thought I would go into the foreign service. And one of the classes I took along the way doesn't exist anymore, at least not that I know of, um, called News Writing 101. And the professor who taught it was a guy named Bill Fishback. And he was the spokesman for the university and a former reporter from the Richmond Times-Dispatch. So he taught this class. This was before um, word processing was on a laptop. You had to go to the word processing center at UVA, which was in the computer science department. So nobody had computers, everybody had typewriters. And they had probably 10 IBM Selectric typewriters on tables. And there were, like I said, maybe 10 or 12 people in the class. So everybody got your own typewriter, uh, a reporter's notebook and a stack of paper. And um, Mr. Fishback would start class and say, okay, I'm the, I'm the fire chief today. And uh, there was a fire last night. Anybody got any questions for me? And we would raise our hands and we would ask questions about the fire and he would just make stuff up. Halfway through class, he would say, time's up, press conference is over. You have uh, 45 minutes to write your story and turn it in. And there was no textbook, no homework. And at the beginning of the semester, I was like, wow, this is kind of hard because you couldn't like now on a, you know, a Word doc, you couldn't cut and paste and move stuff around and see how it looked and all this. You basically had to write the story in your head and then you had one chance and one chance only to type it up because it wasn't time because it was a typewriter. And so we, um, as, as the semester went on, we all got faster and faster at doing this. And by the end of the semester, I could write on deadline, uh, pretty darn quick, accurate, you know, fact-based, 
uh, reporting. And I just thought this was the funnest class because like I said, no homework, no textbook, you know, you were done when you walked out of the room, didn't have to do anything again until the next class. And, uh, I said something to a friend of mine that, man, I just got, I just love this class. It's the best class at UVA. And my friend said, Oh, well, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, underground conservative newspaper. That was the alternative to the Cavalier daily. It was called the university journal at the time. And he said, you know, they're looking for columnists. Why don't you be a columnist at the, at the paper? If you like to write like that. And I said, Oh no, no, I, I don't really want to have to be a cub reporter first and work my way up to be a columnist. Cause that's what I thought columnists were, were former reporters who then could be columnists. He goes, Oh no, no. Reporters are reporters. Columnists are columnists. Uh, you can be a columnist tomorrow. And I was like, really? So I show up, I become a columnist at the university journal. I end up moving to be executive editor and I'm, uh, you know, writing the unsigned editorials. Then there was a, a coup at, uh, at both papers. And I ended up switching over to the Cavalier daily. The conservatives tried to take over the Cavalier daily for a year. And um, <laughs> so, I, so I ended up writing for both papers as a columnist. And the thing that it did was it, it allowed me to graduate from college without, uh, without ever having to worry about anybody asking me for my transcript or my grades uh, because I had a portfolio of published works and employers could look at my writing and decide for themselves if they thought I was a good writer. But uh, what was sort of the subliminal um, uh, point that was made by those news clips was that I could meet a deadline. And that's uh, very valuable to a lot of employers. There's a lot of great writers in the world, but not everybody can meet a deadline. And so that, that's, that was worth at least three jobs out of college uh, were the, the first thing they asked me for was my, my clips from my columns. And uh, so I, as a result, I highly, highly recommend uh, writing for any of the publications here at UVA because you'll not only hone your writing skills, you'll show employers that you can meet a deadline. So after then, when you went from college, you said in your next three jobs that that was really useful to you. Um, what were those jobs? And then how did it eventually get you to speech writing at the White House? So um, the first job out of college was answering phones for a congressman from New York on Capitol Hill. Um, but he knew I was Irish and he was on a um, foreign affairs subcommittee that dealt with uh, all the problems going on in Ireland at the time. So if there was anything that he had to testify on in Ireland, I was allowed to write it. <laughs> so, but mostly I was answering phones. And then uh, the second job I had, I answered an ad in the paper uh, to work at ABC News This Week with David Brinkley, who was the guy before George Stephanopoulos. And um, there was a writer's strike while I was there. And I thought, oh, wow, this is my big break. And now I'm going to get my writing job. And um, instead, I was too junior to be a news writer. Because uh, this is only my, you know, I was 22 or something, and so uh, I I would build the scripts uh, for the for the on-air talent, but not write them. I would just, you know, sort the papers. And then uh, the third job, um, one of my buddies from UVA who um, went on to become Secretary of Labor, actually, he uh, called me and said, "Hey, I heard about the startup, and you might want to throw your name in, and it's something nobody's ever done before. It's going to be a political news service." And there was no such thing that it was before Axios, before Politico, any of that. It was called the hotline. And basically what they did was they aggregated all of the news stories on politics from all the papers across the country. And then we would write uh, little synopses of them. And it's, uh, we started writing at midnight. It was a midnight to noon graveyard shift. The newspapers would go to the printing presses at midnight and send them to us. So we'd get the political stories. We'd um, aggregate them, uh, you know, write up, short little write-ups about them. 
So if Al Gore gave a speech, we would say, oh, the Washington Post said it was brilliant. The New York Times said it was terrible, whatever. Um, and, and this was uh, uh, expensive subscription service. And basically all the networks and all the uh, campaigns in 1988, anybody who was running for president in 88, subscribed to this and this is how they made their money. And eventually the National Journal bought them, but it was a startup at the time. And I was, there was a Republican and a Democrat managing editor. And so I would write as well, but the managing editors picked the stories. And, uh, and, and so those, that's what got me my start in politics because I covered the primaries and just as uh, the Bush campaign was uh, getting the nomination and going into the general election. Um, I got hired there and switched over to being on the campaign staff. And uh, if I, he if was I can cut in really quick. So yeah. was that when you were working there for that um, aggregator, was that a time where you switched from like your columnist experience then to more of a reporter role or how yeah. to like, yeah. okay. Yeah, that was not an opinion uh, world that I was in. It was all um, straight reporting and, uh, you know, compressing down the most salient points of other people's reporting. And, um, but what it taught me to do was how to take a lot of information uh, quickly and distill it down. And the, the next job I had, you know, when I got onto the campaign was writing what was called line of the day, which was uh, a one page sheet that went out uh, to all 50 state chairmen saying what the Bush campaign had done that day, what the Dukakis campaign had done, and why we were going to win and they were going to lose. And it was uh, to, to give anybody who might be called onto the nightly news on behalf of the Bush campaign across the country, uh, some sound bites, uh, some facts about what had happened that day, quotes from the vice president, uh, you know, statistics, whatever. Um, and then, so it was sort of sound bitey material for television. Um, I was more shocked than anybody. He wins the election after being down 17 points. And they say to me, we'd like you to come with us to the White House. And I was shocked. I figured they'd give me some crazy job at the you know, EPA or something. And, uh, and instead they said, come to the White House. And, and I said, but the line of the day is very political. They don't do that at the White House, do they? And they said, no, no. In those days they didn't, now they do. Um, and they said, um, we want you to write magazine pieces by George Bush, ghost write them. So it'd be like, why I love country music by George Bush for country music magazine. And I said, but I, I've never written a magazine article before. And they said, well, are you saying no? <laughs> are you saying you don't want the White House job? And I said, oh, no, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll figure it out. You know, so, so I start writing magazine pieces at the White House. And about six months into it, the, um, the boss comes to me and says, we're going to switch you to speech writing now. And same thing. I said, but I, I've never written a speech before in my life. And he says, are, are you saying no? <laughs> are you saying no to the promotion? And I said, no, 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 I'll take it, I'll take it. And he says, you know, you're going to be fine, don't worry. And I was 24, and I thought, why does this guy think I'm going to be fine? And um, now, looking back on it, I realized that those jobs I just told you about, starting with being a columnist, um, were fact-based, persuasive writing on a deadline. Uh, I had to take large amounts of information and distill them down, which is what a speechwriter does as well. I had to write stuff that could get on the nightly news were sort of soundbitey, catchy stuff. And then I had to write in someone else's voice. And it was the same person I was gonna be a, be a speechwriter for. So uh, that, that is exactly the job description of a speechwriter. But I was intimidated by the title because I had never had that title before. But if I had somebody who was 24 who had that string of jobs sitting in front of me, I'd say, oh yeah, you're gonna be a great speechwriter. You, you'll be fine. 
but at the time I thought it was just a matter of time before I'd get fired. And <laughs> I was, uh, you know, lucky to, lucky to be alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So then doing that at such a young age, was it difficult then to try to put yourself in the narrative voice of the president of the United States? What was that like? And how, how, what were the challenges of trying to communicate his policy ideas, you know, from your own perspective? Yeah. So obviously, you know, George Bush was a much older uh, gentleman and I, here I was this, you know, 24 year old young woman. And um, you, you tend to find yourself in situations like that and you, you just figure it out. And so I started looking to see how the other speechwriters did it. And I started mimicking what worked and uh, I didn't have any, I didn't know any better uh, to screw it up with. I just started uh, uh, figuring out, you have to think about how the president or how, whoever you're writing for, how that person speaks and what words they tend to use. Um, and, and certainly if you watch Saturday Night Live and Dana Carvey, you can see an exaggerated version of, of how George Bush uh, spoke when he was president. But you can also uh, do very well by figuring out the way that they think and the way that they structure arguments. Uh, president Bush was a very good writer. Better, He would say this himself. He was a better writer than speaker. And so it was easy to find other things he had written. And uh, he was famous for all his note writing, uh, all kinds of things he had done in the past, various positions he's had. And so, so it was easy to find things uh, to, uh, to get me into that situation where I could mimic his voice as, as uh, best I could. So then when you were um, there doing that work, what, would, what did your everyday life look like? What were you doing day in and day out as a speechwriter? Well, um, being a speechwriter at, at that level at the White House is um, a job for a young person, <laughs> preferably a single one without kids, and, <laughs> which I was. And, um, and I would say, you know, I would go in um, uh, in the mornings so that I would be there by the time the senior staff meeting was at 7 a.m. Uh, by the time senior staff broke up at 7.30, quarter of eight, it was smart to be at your desk because that's when all the assignments would start, you know, coming in. And, um, and so most of the day was spent, uh, most speech writing operations are um, one man per speech. Uh, George W. Bush's White House, they liked doing it by committee which I've never heard of anybody else doing it that way. But those guys sat in a bullpen and interacted with each other. In our day and in the Reagan day, uh, each speechwriter had their own office where you could sort of focus and not be distracted by everybody else going on. Um, and then, so you'd spend most of the day writing. Uh, you wrote pretty much uh, one to two speeches a week, unless you had something big like the State of the Union Address, which I, I was never senior enough to get. I was doing a lot of video scripts, a lot of uh, what they call rose garden rubbish. The, uh, the I, I don't like that term, but that's what it's called. Um, it was a lot of spelling bee winners and uh, turkey pardonings, uh, Girl Scout of the Year awards. President Bush called it life its own self after uh, a phrase by Dan Jenkins. And I think those were some of his favorites because he got to interact with real people and not be sitting there addressing a joint session of Congress or some high stakes thing that was obviously very nerve wracking. So, so I got to do the fun stuff. So I thought I had the best job of all. And, uh, and so I loved it. Um, and then because I was the only speechwriter who was on the campaign in 88, I got put on all of the 1990 midterm campaign speeches when he would go around the country and campaign for all kinds of people. And so that meant I was on Air Force One a lot, traveling all over the country in case there were last minute changes to the speech. They always wanted a speechwriter on every trip. And that was true, not just of the political speeches. Anytime the president's traveling, there's a speechwriter with him just in case. So I got to, um, I got to see a lot of America 
by the end of it, my favorite speech that I got to write was the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And President Bush was uh, very involved in that speech because he was 18 when, uh, excuse me, 17 and a half when Pearl Harbor happened. And he tried to, tried to uh, enlist that day and was turned away because he wasn't old enough, waited till his 18th birthday and enlisted and, and uh, did not go to college, instead went and fought in World War II. And so I got to talk to him about that, which at that point was something he never wanted to talk about. So it was a big deal to get him to open up about it. And so I feel like as, as time went on, I got more and more responsibility and, and got to write some really um, you know, uh, eye-opening speeches in terms yeah. of the historical value. So I was very, very blessed. Yeah, very cool. So yeah. when you were writing speeches that related to like policy things, as you know, a lot of our audience is policy students or people working in the policy field. Um, how, what was that interaction? Like, how do like the communication staff, the speech writing staff, how do they work with um, those, you know, creating the policy, analyzing the policy, all of that good stuff? So, um, so each, each uh, White House is structured differently. So uh, I'm not sure how the Biden administration has their structured right now, but I can tell you how ours was. Uh, which I think was fairly commonplace at the time, which was, um, so uh, most of the speech writers were divided into either domestic or foreign policy writers. I was a domestic policy writer and um, the guys who wrote the foreign policy speeches mostly came from either State Department or Department of Defense. Uh, th there were uh, five of us at any given time. Uh, with Reagan had nine speech writers at any given time. Obama had 14. So uh, different different White Houses have different size um, of speechwriting staffs. And each one of us had a dedicated researcher uh, who provided us with whatever we needed. And um, on the domestic policy side, there was the uh, Domestic Policy Council, which is the policy office at the White House. And uh, between the researchers and the policy guys, they would get you whatever you needed for the speech. I would get direction from the director of communications if the speech was high level enough, you got called into the Oval Office to talk to the president about what he wanted. Uh, but, but most of the time would be the White House communications director. Uh, we'd have a big meeting. He'd sit down, he'd say, okay, uh, Mary-Kate, I'm assigning you the speech at uh, the Na Grand Tetons National Park, let's say. Uh, the president wants to talk about the Clean Air Act amendments. So you need to talk about uh, you know, environmental policy. You need to talk about uh, what we're gonna do in the schools, you know, whatever it is. And so you'd get three or four bullet points that had to be in the speech. And then everything else was up to you to fill 15 or 20 minutes. And um, so you'd get a lot of material from the Domestic Policy Council. And then the researchers would come up with all the local color, things like that. If it was a foreign policy address, because occasionally I got asked to write those if there was a, uh, a toast, let's say, at a state department, uh, I mean, a state dinner. Uh, a lot of times I would get given the toast instead of the actual policy address. <laughs> and, um, and so the toast, even there's uh, interplay between the White House and State Department where they're giving you exact language that they want. The problem is it's uh, often not the, the um, how should I say this diplomatically? It's, uh, it's often written for the eye, not the ear. How about that? Uh, where <laughs> you read it and you're like, Okay, I know what they're trying to say here, but this is going to bomb if we say it the way they say it. So there's always these back and forth with state uh, or the National Security Council uh, on how to how to word things in a way that's uh, you know more more speech like than uh, than a white paper. So, um, so yeah, that's how it all went down. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Not only in policy does the bureaucracy come into play, but also in the okay. speech writing and the communication oh, God, yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. And then it would, um, uh, one more thing I should tell you is mm -hmm. anything that, that the speechwriters wrote got staffed. That was, it's called the staffing process where, um, you know, I, I'd write a draft. It would go to the, the chief speechwriter. We'd go back and forth with editing. 
okay, now we're both happy with it. Then it would go to the office of the um, staff secretary and that office would circulate it to an average of 20 or 22 people, uh, depending on the content of the speech. And if there was a mention in there of the EPA, somebody from EPA had to check that sentence. You know, OMB was very involved because it usually had numbers in it of how much was gonna be spent on whatever policy. Uh, so all these people got to weigh in. The Reagan speechwriters were allowed to do what was called reconciliation, where if you had two competing comments, uh, the speechwriter would decide which comment to go with, right? Or which correction or whatever. Uh, in the Bush administration, the feeling was that the speechwriters were too emotionally attached to our speeches. So we were not allowed to referee um, because of course your incentive is to say, I'm not making any changes. This thing is brilliant. Why should I change anything, right? <laughs> um, so the chief speechwriter was the one who had to fight it out with everybody. And then uh, the changes got put in, there was a deadline. And if, um, if anybody was late for the deadline, they had to explain directly to the president why they were late, which tended to stop people from um, missing the deadline. And then uh, the last person it would go to was the president. And he had the final say, there were no changes after it went to the president because you never wanted to have what we called the surprise on the way to the podium where he had, he had approved one speech and there's a different speech waiting for him at the podium. So no changes after it went to the president. So what's the biggest challenge that you faced um, when working for the White House or later after um, when you worked for then Attorney General Bill Barr um, for his office? What was the big challenge you faced as a public servant? So um, probably the biggest was that I was, uh, for a while, I was um, the only woman that eventually changed. And, uh, but I was definitely the youngest. And so when I would call other places um, to do research for a speech or something, say, or, or if I went in person and they could see how young I was, um, I could tell that it was, I, I was having a hard time being taken seriously. Um, and, and then when I got to the justice department, I remember interviewing for the job and the deputy attorney general said, you know what? Um, I am so sorry. I was going to interview you for the next half an hour, but I've just been called into a meeting. So I'm not gonna be able to do that. I only have one question for you. Um, are you, you look very young to me. Uh, are you setting yourself up for failure here? And I, <laughs> I said, uh, no, I, I don't believe I am. And he's like, okay, that's all I need to know. See ya. And off he goes. <laughs> so I was like, what kind of job interview question is that? Like, who's going to say yes to that? You know? Yeah. And, anyway, and uh, so what, what started happening was after we left office, I, I started freelancing for all kinds of, you know, CEOs and uh, people who had been in the cabinet who no longer had speechwriters, you know, who knew me through George Bush. And as I, um, I would deal with um, mostly not so much on the cabinet level, because those guys knew me, but the CEOs, um, I would call the staff and say, hi, I, um, I'm the speechwriter on the upcoming speech. I'd like to make an appointment to see, you know, Mr. Uh, Jones and um, talk to him about the speech before I start writing. And they'd say, oh, um, we, don't, we don't do that here. If you could just write the speech and turn it in, that would be great. And I'd be like, um, no, I, I, I think I have to talk to him before I can start writing for him so I can get his voice. No, we don't think that's necessary. And, um, and of course, talk about setting yourself up for failure. Uh, so I would agree to this. And then of course the speech wouldn't go well. And so I started realizing uh, they're doing this because of my age, they don't take me seriously. Um, and so I started realizing that I just have to stick up for myself. Nobody else is gonna do it. 
And so when I would say I need to meet with him and I'd get some pushback, I'd say, um, listen, I, um, I don't want this speech to be a disaster and I'm sure you don't either. So if I can't meet with him, um, it will be a disaster. And why don't I give you some names of other people who might be willing to write the speech for you under those circumstances, but I can't, I can't do it that way. So thank you so much, uh, but here's somebody else's name. And then they go, oh, oh, oh um, okay, yeah, you can meet with them. And um, so I just had to start sticking up for myself saying, no, you don't seem to understand. You can't write a speech for somebody. And this is before YouTube, you know, you couldn't just find it elsewhere. And um, so, so that was probably the, the thing that was the biggest obstacle I faced was just sort of um, client perceptions of somebody who's in their 20s um, uh, writing that level of speeches. And, um, and like I said, it's just, um, I think part of it too, let me add one more thing is I, I used to say a lot that I had fallen into this job. I couldn't believe I got to be a White House speechwriter, how lucky I was. I used lucky a lot. And as I've gotten older, I realized maybe that's something women do and shouldn't. Um, I shouldn't say, uh, yes, of course, I was um, very blessed to have that opportunity. I'm not saying that. But um, when, you, when you think back on that list of jobs I had, um, and, and the job skills that I listed to you a few minutes ago, um, I had put in my 10,000 hours and I had worked my butt off. And um, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't that I was unlucky, it's that you sort of make your own luck. And uh, I had worked hard and I, I deserved to be in that job. And it was one of the greatest privileges of my life. And uh, so um, anyway, but that's, so that's the other thing I would say is I, um, th those were the two obstacles I think is that I, I didn't, I didn't frame it correctly as having worked hard and I should have stuck up for myself a little bit more. So um, like I mentioned earlier, I'm at the Batten School, which is the primary audience of uh, the Academical Podcast. We're not just a school of public policy and policy analysis, but also one of leadership. So um, what's been the most important leadership lesson you've learned, whether it be from President H.W. Bush or just any time um, in your career? So I go back to this um, documentary that I made about President Bush. And I um, interviewed two people who were in the film. One was former um, defense secretary, former director of the CIA, Bob Gates. And um, I said to him, um, I remember listening to you give a speech where you introduced President Bush and you said you would walk through fire for George Bush. And I wanna know why did you say that? Why would you walk through fire for him? And he pulled out a letter that President Bush had written to him after he left office. And he read this letter out loud. Dear Bob, when Barr read your letter, the tears flowed, but she had to get in line. I'd already been there. I hate not finishing. Remember the African runner at the Olympics who pulled a muscle and entered the stadium to finish 30 minutes after the pack? He said, my country didn't send me here to start. They sent me here to finish. There's a parallel here. The thing that deeply touched me about your letter was this very generous assessment of what I was trying to do and what I tried to be. I will miss working with you. I would like to feel that somewhere down the road I could repay you for that loyal support that always came my way. You've served out there and at the White House with great distinction and always with honor and decency. Good luck in what I hope is your happiest new year ever. You're a good man, Bob Gates. And you have brought this friend of yours nothing but pride in you 
and great happiness from a friendship I'll always treasure. And I was like, okay, I can see why you'd uh, go, go through fire for George Bush. The next interview I did was Coach K at Duke. And Coach K was a friend of George Bush's also. And I say, Coach K, um, I just interviewed Bob Gates. He said he'd walk through fire for George Bush. I've heard your uh, players say they would run through a brick wall for you. What is it that makes people want to go through fire or uh, run through brick walls for, for people who are leading them? What, what is it about leadership that gets that feeling going? And Coach K said, uh, well, there's three things. The first is uh, the person needs to, the leader needs to know what they're doing. They have to have some level of expertise. They need to convince people that they, they get what they're supposed to do and they know how to do it, right? He says, the second thing is they have to know how to lead a team and be part of a team and understand collaboration and all that sort of thing. He says, but there are plenty of people who know what they're doing and know how to be on a team and nobody will follow them anywhere because they're the biggest jerks in the world, right? He says, so what is it that is the secret sauce? And that is humility. And he says, the best leaders do not ask people to do something that they wouldn't do themselves. And George Bush was always that way because he had had so many jobs on his way to the presidency. He had been in so many staff positions. Um, he understood what it was like to be all these people who are working for him. And so he treated us so well, his loyalty, as they say, loyalty goes up as well as down. And so of course he treated the queen of England well, but he also treated you know, the guys in the kitchen at the White House really well. And there, there are so many stories that came out in this documentary of people he used to drive to AA meetings and people who, you know, he had a, a tennis pro, he gave him his, his car, uh, all kinds of stuff like this that happened throughout his life. Um, the, the, this humble nature that he had, he was not uh, one of these guys, do you, do you know who you're dealing with kind of thing. Uh, just the, uh, the humility, uh, is so key to leadership and was such a factor in his success, um, you know, whether it was building an unprecedented coalition of countries uh, to go into the first Persian Gulf War, or whether it was, um, you know, helping people whose parents were dying uh, while they were working at the White House. And it's, uh, it's a remarkable thing about him, and it's what made him so, uh, so beloved. And I think there's leadership lessons in that for, for everybody. Definitely a lot to think about. Um, well, thank you, Professor Carey, so much for joining us on the podcast. And um, for any of those, uh, any undergraduate students listening, this is Professor Mary Kate Carey, who teaches political speech writing um, and democracy out loud in the college. So definitely uh, give her a look on Lose List. But thank you so much, Professor Carey, for joining us. And we uh, hope to hear from you again soon. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. That's all for this week. If you have any questions, comments, show ideas, you can pitch us at virginiapolicyreview at gmail.com. Until next time.